This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 84. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 84 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Good to be back with you again. Got a great show for you. Mr. Brian Hood will be on today. Now, Brian, talk about a different, completely different area of audio. Brian is the uh, head contractor that built the new tiny telephone studios in Oakland. So I met Brian when he was building tiny telephone studio B in San Francisco, got along with him, thought, oh, this is an interesting guy. And then as, of course, as the podcast started to come into formation, at some point it did occur to me, I thought, I should have Brian on at some point. Well, lo and behold, when uh, tiny telephone studio C in Oakland went together, I ran into Brian again. And at the time before the opening of the studio, which I believe was in January of 2016 of this year, I just interviewed John and talked about having Brian on. So they said, well, look, we're going to shut down in six months. We're going to, we're going to run the the studio for six months. And then we're going to shut down for a month to make any assessments and changes that we feel that we need to make because we feel that is the prudent thing to do. So I said, okay, well at that time, why don't we, uh, why don't we get together and we'll, we'll have a chat. Brian and I will have a, have a, a, a chat. And then John and I will have a quick little chat as well. So long story short, sorry, Brian Hood will be on discussing construction and studios and just a general talk on, on what he's learned with Tiny Telephone and building that new studio as opposed to uh, Studio B in San Francisco. And then uh, preceding that, I will have a catch-up conversation with John Vanderslice. A uh, little shorter conversation than I've had with him in the past, but just kind of a catch-up and then a primary conversation with uh, Brian Hood. So, Brian Hood coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A couple things to tell you. AES. So, AES Los Angeles 2016 uh, looks like it's September 29th through October 2nd. I will be there, and uh, I hope you will be too. We're working out some uh, details, but uh, I feel it's, I can tell you this at this point. Uh, I don't think it's letting the cat out of the bag. I will be at the Focal booth. Uh, I was at the Focal booth at NAM, and we did, you know, of course, our interview with Jim Scott. So I'll be back at the Focal booth again. We will be doing a uh, another interview, possibly a live stream on the internet. Not exactly sure. That's, that's the internet in some of these conference halls is always uh, a challenge to say the least. So we're working on that. So if you're going to be in Los Angeles late September, early October, I'd love to see you. Come by, say hi, introduce yourself. You know, it's funny when you're at these conferences, and I'm really bad with names, I got to say. So, and actually sometimes faces too. So sometimes somebody will come up to me and be like, Matt, and I'm like, oh God, I can't remember this person's name. And that happened at NAMM where a couple people came up to me, Matt, and I was like, oh God, I don't know their name. And then the person, the next thing out of their mouth was, I love the show. It's, it's awesome. And I was like, oh, okay, good. I don't know this person. They just, they're a fan of the show. That's good. So 
be one of those people. Come up to me and scare the shit out of me and say, hey, Matt. And I'm going to be like, I can't remember who this is. And that's just the most embarrassing feeling when you can't remember. But in this case, I, I will know that I, I gave you the tip to uh, say hello. Anyhow, so so yeah, come and say hello and uh, you know we'll have coffee if uh, that is possible at the time. And uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, what else? What else? Hats. Remember the hats? I had some hats there for a while. My sister made a, um, a batch of working class audio hats and I sent them out and gave them away. Um, we kind of worked on the logo a little bit more. We tweaked it to look more like uh, the original. I had some specifics that I was, you know, I was being tweaky, whatever. So I kind of hounded my sister about it and uh, she is sending me a small batch of hats and I'm going to sell them. We're going to sell them on the Facebook page, I think. We're going to start with that and see how that goes. Um, so look for that. I'll, I'll announce it. You know, your simple black working class audio hat. So if uh, hats are your thing, maybe they're not your thing. Maybe you need a hat. I think you need a hat. A working class audio hat, by the way. So there it is. Yeah. So that's what we got on board. Running a little ragged today. I've been running around trying to, and I know many of you are going to go facepalm and say, oh my God, but my kids are into this Pokemon Go thing. And just so you know, if you've, if you've got kids and you're trying to figure out like, oh, okay, well, I'll just get them, you know, an old phone or, a, or like a, a cheap Android phone on a prepaid plan. Let me tell you, here's what I've learned. You got to have a phone that's got two gigabytes of RAM. And obviously you can't upgrade the RAM in these phones. So a lot of these phones have 1.5 gigabytes or even a gigabyte. That's one of the aspects that makes them not that expensive. So yeah, so I've been running around all day looking for phones with two gigabytes of RAM that don't cost an arm and a leg because, you know, some of these phones are so expensive. And this is, if it's just for Pokemon Go, I mean, I'm like, I got to, I got to draw the line somewhere. But here's the bonus. If if your kids are, uh, or is adults, if you're into this, I'm not really into it, but the kids are. We took the kids out yesterday uh, for a walk around uh, uh, a reservoir by our house, and there's like a three-mile walk, 2.7 miles to be exact. Those kids and all their friends did the full walk. So I was like, okay. I wasn't into this in the beginning. Now I'm into this because I see how they get out of the house and they just, you know, without even thinking about it, walk three miles. So I think that's good instead of sitting on the couch playing games. So there it is. There's my Pokemon Go rant. Pokemon Go making its appearance on Working Class Audio. That's terrible. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. So let's get to it. Let's talk to, let's, first we're going to talk to uh, John Vanderslice. Uh, and for a short period of time, then we'll get to Brian Hitt. So here's John Vanderslice catch up conversation here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Hi, John. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you here again. It's ni- it's always nice to see you. Well, welcome back to the podcast. You're the uh, first repeat. Hell yeah, offender. I'm I'm uh, I'm honored to be back again. A lot of, I got a lot of people uh, telling me they heard the first interview. That was a good interview. Well, thank thank you. I mean, you're you if you're like if you just anyone like person X, if you talk for thirty minutes, you assume that you've said a lot of stupid shit. So I'm really glad. That, <laughs> I'm sure there was it was like confusing because I just was talking so much that I'm sure there was some bullshit in there. But yes, no, that was good. Uh, and the reason we're back today is um, I've come to talk to uh, to 
you and Brian Hood because this has been planned for a while. We're uh, we're in the month of July, and we're in a you're in a planned shutdown of Tiny Telephone C, which was set to begin with because you yes. knew that you wanted to run for a while and then stop and reevaluate acoustics, touch up some things on the Neve. What else was meant to be accomplished in that time period? Well, I think that the the big reason why we shut down it and. When we initially told the acoustic architect that we were going to do this, he said that every studio promises that they'll do that and they never do it. He says that not once has a studio ever followed up with doing that. And I thought that was interesting because, of course, once you're up and, uh, up and running, the last thing you want to do is, is, is stop. You know, do you know what I mean? You're, you're financially to a point where you, 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 can, you cannot afford to stop. Right. And so I definitely understood why most studios probably like pull out of that agreement. But... We purposely undertreated, as we talked about last time on the podcast, we undertreated the room knowing that we would never have enough like empirical knowledge, enough information about the room without doing dozens and dozens of very different sessions in here. And I think that the big question was reverb tail, quality of reverb tail. A lot of other stuff, we knew, we knew that there would be problems that came up. Like, for instance, on the Neve, there were like globally, Aux 2 wasn't working. So we realized that to fix Aux 2, we actually had to flip the Neve. So that's a, that's a tough thing to do if you're trying to do it over a weekend, you know. And then there's other things that we can do while we have it flipped. So it kind of worked out that we, we saved some control room problems for the month that we were going to be shut down to really deal with the live room itself. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the main question was really the reverb. The reverb time was 1.3 seconds mm-hmm. when we opened. And we knew that was too long. We didn't quite know where we wanted to peg it. So now we're looking, we're trying to get to like 0.9 seconds would be like ideal. And we also want to take a dent out of like five, 600, 700 cycles. So we're doing specifically, we're hanging panels on the ceiling that's designed to get us there. And it's, you know, we're roughing in, so we'll see what happens. But Hmm. I think without, we just wouldn't have been able to make a, that like targeted of a decision without having like real sessions going on with probably 10, 11 different engineers who have very different styles. And different bands with different aesthetics and obviously different styles of music. Yeah, and different drummers. You know, if, yeah. if, if, we're, you know, if we're worried about activating the room, it's really going to be drums that do it more than anything. And that, that's very interesting because there's some... I remember recording a drummer. I did The first thing I did in here was this record with Daniel Fulmer, and his drummer was absolutely wonderful, like really light touch, very well-tuned kit, very well-tuned floor tom, and uh, just very simple. You know, I usually take away all the symbols. It's the first thing I ever do with with drummers. <laughs> and like, and I mean, why isn't this a thing? Like, why don't we talk about this? You know what I mean? It's almost like like we have like three hundred and twenty firearms. Like, like can't we just say that there shouldn't be any, any guns in this guy? Like, why can't we say that there shouldn't be any symbols in like a, a room? They're like super dangerous and like, <laughs> you know, volatile, uh, you know, and, and destabilizing. And they completely, they throw a drum set off balance so easily. And it's, it's amazing because there's, like the other day, I don't know why, I, went, I, I got, I've been listening to Led Zeppelin presence all the time. Like, you know, I grew up, smoking weed and listening to Led Zeppelin. And I'm not sure if I've really matured much past I, I was going to say, are you still growing up smoking weed and listening to Zeppelin? E- yes. So I, was, I started listening to Presence. Presence was the fr- Jamie White, my first girlfriend in sixth grade, gave me Presence 
for my birthday, which is just so odd to think about it. I mean, I was 11 years old and Jamie gave me, like, how did, first off, how did she know? Like, that's an interesting choice in the Led Zeppelin discography. I mean, it's, it's a lot of like people's favorite Zeppelin album. It's a very, it's a weird outlier. It's a strange record. And it's, I think it's an interesting recording, but if you listen to the way that Bonham plays cymbals on that record, it's like, it's, it's really, it's like school. And there's, there's like uh, raw tracks up on YouTube where he's playing. And there's some outtakes from Presence and in, in from the, and through the outdoor. What mm-hmm. a terrible album title. Terrible. So, but, but it's interesting to hear. He's absolutely pounding, brutalizing this this choked kick drum, you know, he has the he has the uh, the resonant side of the of the of the kick drums t- tuned all the way up like a jazz dude. Mm-hmm. Really interesting way he would tune. He was so intellectual with how he tuned drums. Such a smart person, but you hear how how he plays his cymbals. He's loathed to play crash cymbals. So it's interesting because you think about him as a power drummer, and he's incredibly reserved. And you also hear with these raw tracks that he is. He's playing with 10% of his power when he hits the, the cymbal. And when he hits a snare drum, it's like he's on 100. And it's very interesting. Of course, this is the, you know, the Glenn Johns thing where drummers are balancing themselves. And, oh, yeah. And, and that's all great in theory, but you have to be a great drummer. You, you're a drummer. You understand these things. You like, ha- yeah. You're you a drummer engineer. Balance. You have to balance your own playing. Like when I go play live... I hit the drums a lot harder than I do the cymbals because yeah. you know the cymbals. It's like water and sand. It's going to get in everything. Yep. yep. You know. So you and and you have to be light. You've, you've also learned that too because you've been on the other side of the glass. So you know that like because it's one thing to tell a drummer that God love drummers. I love them. They're great. Things sound different when you're sitting. You know, behind a on a throne with ear with ear damage. I mean, things sound very very <laughs> different. You know what I mean? What? Like, yeah. <laughs> but like. It's one thing to to nod your head when when an engineer says that, and it's another thing to actually, you know, the first thing I have to do on every record is bring the drummer. Like I, I, I fucking love drummers; they're great, they're awesome. But I have to bring them back in front of the console and say, "Listen." But but a lifetime of habits is hard to break in in day one. You know what I mean? So it's like the, the end of this story is. I just remove symbols because it's like way easier than trying to like all symbols are just like just the basics. You know what I like. I like a nice pair of antiquated hi-hats, and I really like ride cymbals. I really like ride cymbals artfully played as a kind of a swelling crash sometimes. Ah. I like ride cymbals as a punctuation on a fill. Um, I don't like ride, crash cymbals ever. I've, I've never once been in a session and, and thought, God damn, that crash is beautiful. And I've been in a session where I've said something sounded great like a thousand times in one day. You know what I mean? Often you're recording very, very good musicians. But I just think we were sold a bill of goods with like <laughs> the normal trap. You'd you like know, to setup. issue a recall on all crash Yeah, yeah absolutely a recall. Now, there are drummers like Jason Sloda, like who's a great drummer, genius. He, got a, he had a cymbal bag stolen when he was on tour with Tao a couple weeks ago. And he was telling me about sourcing out good-sounding cymbals and that he would play. Literally, the guy went to Turkey to play cymbals. He cares, and his cymbals sound great. But very few people have that kind of dedication to making their cymbals sound good. And you know, he yeah. he had one like like piece of shit Chinese like it was like a guitar center cymbal, and he said that he played a hundred versions of that cymbal before he found one that was good and it sounded awesome. I had the opportunity. I have a um, 
symbol deal with uh, Istanbul Mehmet symbols. And uh, I went down to the warehouse in LA and I sat there for a little over two hours, just going through playing symbols and putting together a set that worked together. And I, like I'd pick up a pair and she'd say, oh, well, that, that pair is actually, you know, that's used and people have been beating on it. I'm like, I don't care. I want to hear yeah. it. As it turns out, those were the hi-hats. Interesting. So I took those, you know, it's, but I hear what you're saying. It's you, a quality drum, drum recording is directly, um, the symbols are, are, are a major component of that. And, and because they are unfairly voiced, do you, do you know what I mean? For everyone involved, like they, you know, if just the, the, um, SPL of a crash symbol versus like a rack tom. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's right blocking often the rack tom from a beautiful, highly sensitive, fast Sheps or DPA or C61 or SM23 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why people use Coles. They're trying to, you know, trying to slow down that transient information, yeah. you know, and Coles work great. But they do. You know what sounds great on a drum set? Coles without cymbals. Like that sounds great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you can like juice 16K on a 31102 or get some air up there without like letting in this like meth-fueled addict, you know, with a knife running around. Also, I think sometimes drummers don't think it through. It's like they go to, you know, they'll buy like a late 60s Ludwig maple drum set Sounds amazing. And then they get some really uh, haphazard choices made with cymbals. And then you have, as you say, this great sounding rack tom. Yeah. And then this abusive sounding yeah. crash cymbal that has no relation to that. And the problem is, too, is that you're often gouging out inform- interesting information when you're having to deal with cymbals. You know, you know what I mean? If you're, you're like getting rid of five, 600 cycles on a drum set, like that's. That's some beautiful voicing in the toms. Do you know what I mean? That's some very interesting kick drum stuff. It's like, it's, it's part of the power of a snare drum. I remember someone telling me, oh, Peter Gabriel made his drummer not play cymbals on the third record. I'm like, whatever. And then I started recording bands and I was like, why is this like one anecdote? Like why, why? And then you listen to like Jim Keltner, you know, a guy who has to have a gun pointed at his head to actually hit a cymbal. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay, now I see why this guy is the most like extensively paid and hired drum drummer in LA. And I know this is like, you know, the Star Wars or CGI of of some music, but if you listen to those early Def Leppard records that mm-hmm. Mutt Lang did, Pyromania and Hysteria, listen to the drum kit. It's mostly drums. The cymbals are so far down in the mix that it's all drums, guitars, and vocals. So when I do, when they pass that euthanasia law and I've decided to kill myself, I'll definitely buy those albums <laughs> and put them on. <laughs> it just sounds oh, like man, such a bummer for me to go home today and like I have these two beautiful cats walking my hardwood floor, my VPI turntable, and then decide to put on Def Leppard. <laughs> Get some fresh razor blades and set a bath. All right, let me reel you in. So <laughs> what have you learned in the months that that TTC, Tiny Telephone C, has been open? Um, I've learned that, okay, maybe, I don't know if this is the same with Parenthood, but opening the B room, opening the second studio was like brutal. It was like exponentially. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. Exactly. That right. was like more than twice as much work. I'm not sure why. Even it's it's in the same building, and yet it was like super painful. For some weird reason, because we know so much more, because I had Brian, because I had Gary Kreiman doing the Neve, because I had 
super smart people like Manny Lacaruba and Brian's crew who know, they know about recording studios, Joe, Nate, they're all smart people. Mm -hmm. They're really, really knowledgeable because of this like talent pool. There's so many less problems here. And for some reason, owning this studio is not the kind of drag that I thought it was going to be. And I'm not complaining. It's just that owning a business, any kind of business is like, it comes with a certain amount of, um, you know, kind of low level maintenance, you know, whether it's just like your, you know, your life isn't deciding which revision of 1176 to buy. Your life is, is actually dealing with like connection problems. Do you know what I mean? They're very unsexy problems that, and, and engineer complaints literally every, you know, every session, you know? So that just, this place is so much better designed and so much better built. The isolation, the tie lines, that it's been way easier to run this room than I imagined. And that's been amazing because it's free. It's, it's kind of like allowed me to take on a lot more records. I was limiting it to one record a month, and now I just don't have that cap anymore. I mean, I, I, I can't go too deep because I'm still doing the accounting. I'm still doing the You're talking about for your things. personal work schedule. For my personal life, I just right. thought this was going to take over my creative life, and it hasn't. And the reason that it hasn't is that when I come here, like – the AC works, the lights work, the, every connection throughout the studio, the headphone you know, system, which was decided by these smart guys, like they made really, really good decisions. So we just don't have the, the constant atrophy that we have in San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco, the studios are dialed in. There's something to be said for that. But those things were built with like sawdust and bailing wire. You know what I mean? They were built by people who didn't know jack shit. And I was... The captain of the ship, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> captain Jack shit. Yeah, yeah, Captain Jack shit. Who's that guy? What, what is it? Who's the jo Johnny Depp character in Pirates of the Caribbean? Uh, captain Jack Sparrow? <laughs> this is the dumbest fucking movies I've ever seen. Like, I was like flying somewhere. Like I was flying to Europe once and I, they were... They had Pirates 4 on and I just I was just trying to power through this like Ativan that I'd taken. So I was like, all right, I'll take the bait. I'll watch this <laughs> Pirates 4 biggest piece of shit i've ever seen in my life i mean once you go past a certain number it's like jaws three halloween three come on but the thing is is that the the, the budget of like pirates here it's like 150 million dollars you, you should at least be wowed by like cgi and stuff right oh my god this guy <laughs> needs to be stopped man so uh tell me some negatives tell me what you well the, didn't foresee i would say okay big negative huge negative the Neve needed another six months. We needed another six months of rebuilding. And the reason is, is that there's like, you can't know what's wrong with the console until you finish certain tasks. You know what I mean? Until you like start to troubleshoot it. And it, like for other, in other words, there were things that were globally out that we missed because we had to flip the Neve back. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, we had to live with like, you know, aux two and aux six being out on the entire console. Now, we don't need the auxes in a way because we have the, the headphone system is set up totally differently. We don't use the auxes for that. But it's still a super drag to have to tell like a new engineer that the second aux does not work on the entire console. And like there were like master section things we didn't get to. It's my fault. I just, you know, I, I had to open because the Kickstarter people, we had to open and just get cash flow rolling. And so I kind of forced the issue and that would I, that's the big the biggest problem was that the rest of it is like normal 
fog of war stuff. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're just like, why did we put power there and not there? And that's just, that doesn't bother me. You know, like that, that's, that's, you're going to intellectually be so ragged at the end that you're going to make mistakes. And mm-hmm. we didn't, we made no structural mistakes that couldn't be reverse engineered. So that's a big thing because that, that often happens. I mean, there are problems in the B room and in the A room that we'll net, we can't, there's no, we can't do anything about it. Um, now that wouldn't affect a band necessarily, but it affects the engineer workflow. So I would say the big thing was not giving those guys like another six months because even fabricating metal plates, you know, we're doing that now and it's like, it takes a while. You have, there's a lot of planning and blueprints and, you know, so the rest, I mean, we probably didn't have enough outboard gear when we opened. You know, I, I just bought two discrete Uri 1176s from up north. I drove up north two days ago to buy them from Craigslist. And, I, you know, they're expensive. They're hard to source out. Ones that are not priced at five grand. But, you know, we're short. Th- those are big compressors for us here. We, we don't really have that much compression. So we opened with... It was like 1975 as far as outboard gear. You know what I mean? Like, or 1978, there was like... A nine four nine and a prime, a, 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 the original prime time and some like original issue Yuri stuff, but like not a lot of stuff like a studio would have in nineteen seventy five. You know, like four there was like four channels of compression, which I think is fascinating. You know what I mean? To try to to run a session with limited compression is very interesting. And we have eight Studer eight twenties here, which I think I would say my gut feeling is that they have the, the headroom is better. I think the sound card, they have the same sound cards as an 800. I think that fidelity-wise, they sound better than 827s. And I think that that actually, it helps you use less. The console certainly makes you use less EQ. You just don't need it, you know? I mean, it's on the console, but you also... What are the mic pre's on that console? They're 31102s, so they're 1084s. They're the the last stop on the, the, um, the, the fatal decision that Neve made to move to AB amps. That, this was the, the last Class A module they made. 31102s have switchable top end. They're, okay, so think about like a 1073 mm-hmm. with more mid-frequencies, switchable top end, so it has, six, it has um, 16, which is beautiful. I, to me, it feels voiced higher than 16. It feels more like 18. It's a beautiful, beautiful open um, airiness that is, I would say, it, it's worth paying a grand for just that frequency it's really useful it's crazy how often you use that um 12 10 more frequency frequencies in the middle has a very useful high q switch uh-huh. it has extensive top and and um and bottom shelving similar to like a like a broadcast module like 33 uh, 33 114 and it has i think the lowest it goes on the bot with the low frequency is 220 I mean, it would be, you know, what's awesome is like those, like having a couple 1081s would be unbelievable. I mean, you get addicted to these Neve frequency points and then you're just like, well, if I could just have one more, I would be happy. And <laughs> that's not the case. Obviously, you're happy with the decision of getting the console in general because I would say I'm assuming was, you are. I would say outside of my emotional life, like the people that have loved me and that I've loved and my mom and my brother and my family and my friends and my cats, Clover and Miette, who are just unbelievably important to me. I would say that buying that console was the best decision I ever made in my life. Like outside of like, you know, emotional stuff that really matters. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just gear, you know, it's just gear at some point. Right. But I would say that without a doubt, 
it was the best decision I ever made. And I've made some terrible decisions. And I'm, I'm, we could do a podcast on my bad gear decisions. I mean, that would be a very whole podcast dedicated. Oh, it, it would be a three hour blockbuster. Yeah. So I would say it was the best. Well, I was going to say we made. could just have a podcast based on that. Just John's <laughs> bad decisions. Well, you know what would be good about that is that I really mean this that I, so I've owned the A room for 19 years. It took me about eight or nine years to be able to accept that I've made a bad decision and to immediately log into eBay and throw that piece of shit up and sell it. Because what happens is that you go through this long rigmarole about what, how- what are, we, what are we talking about here? About bad gear decisions. Oh, oh, And oh. it took me, in other words, it took me nine years to be able to face the bad, like, oh, well, maybe this engineer doesn't like it, but I, I think it works well on with this combination. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're constantly talking yourself into, um, like that you've made- intellectually all of the the whatever forum searching that you did has yielded good results as opposed to like you've actually just fucked up and bought something stupid do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like i remember i had mics modded by klaus heine which was a massive mistake and we, we could talk about this for 30 minutes love the guy awesome dude terrible decision for me to mod my m49 and my sm69 i mean crazy bad for spl those mics were distorting for changing the eq curve for misunderstanding what these microphones are for do you know what i mean it's like one thing to get it back to spec it's another thing to completely change the electronics of these mics hmm. and throw thousands of dollars at the problem it took me three years to actually admit to myself that i made a mistake because it's very one everything is geared against that your decision making this is the trump problem do you know what i mean it's like when, when you have like when you're you, you, the whole house of cards can come down if you have to admit that you've made a bad decision. Do you know what I mean? Because right. there, there's a thousand decisions that are right behind that, that you're just like, well, where do I stand then with like knowing what a good microphone is and knowing what a good mod is and knowing what sounds good and knowing what a microphone should do. And sometimes the signal, the, the frequency range that a microphone doesn't pass is as important as what it does pass, you know, like IE ribbon microphones. So it took me... 10, eight, nine years to be able to understand when I made a bad decision. So that I would argue was the best thing that I ever learned as far as like how to run a studio. One was dealing with clients and right. bands, but second was being able to reverse engineer a terrible decision. And from that point on, I would get something, I would literally sell it within a week if it wasn't doing what I thought it should do. Right. Emotionally disconnecting from from yes. the purchase. Thank you. I could have said that in the right in the first sentence <laughs> and then just stopped. Well, that. no, I mean when you when you sink a bunch of money into something and you've done, you've spent hours and hours researching and talking to people, you feel a sense of obligation to hold on to yes. it because you want to own it. Yeah, so so it's like a you basically you're avoiding buyer's remorse, right? Like so so that's what's like behind the door is like profound buyer's remorse and also mm -hmm. the acknowledgement that you may not know anything, right? <laughs> Which is true. Like mm -hmm. we don't know anything at all and we're operating in the dark and we fetishize old gear that may or may not be worth fetishizing and we rebuild old gear that may or may not be worth rebuilding. Yeah, I mean I've gone through gone through a ton of gear got rid of so much stuff and now when i see gear i'm a little more objective about it and yeah. i see it and i go ooh and then i i stop myself and go okay wait what is this worth what what's the reality yeah. uh -huh, you know do yeah. i have to get this repaired modded what's the history yes. of this and yeah. and do a little more uh research yeah. before diving in and going ooh yes it's magical yeah so oh, yeah 
Well, the studio looks fantastic, and uh, you're only building upon something great. So it's great that you're, I think, you know, admitting that you need to have a, a stopping point, readjust, and then get back up on the horse kind yeah. of concept. I think that's that's a smart move in my I, opinion. I think it's going to help us. I do think that you need to prevent me from opening another room. When, oh, f- uh, no. Well, we're talking about opening an SSL mix room in in the building right next to Tiny Telephone SF. And the reason is, is that we're we're sold out in all three rooms now for between two, three months. We're starting to lose a lot of mixing. And this is the point in that curve. I need I that, need to stop. That I think you may. I, I don't know. This. Well, they. All my friends told me this would ruin. This would end me. This studio. So I think that I've been emboldened by, by you know that line in The Simpsons, the great era of like, of repossession will never end or whatever. When the repo <laughs> men are taking all the te- the computers away after the first tech bubble. Well, that's interesting though. I mean, seriously, you are considering opening up. We are because we're turning. We're losing mixing. I don't care about the money. We're we're we're, we're losing mixing though to like, and the records are getting clobbered. You know, like they're they're taking. We're we're having records go elsewhere, and I'm I haven't been happy about what the result is. So I think that we just need to keep stuff in house. And I think that buying shit, you can buy an SSL four thousand for like forty grand, thirty five grand. You know, I mean that's. But see this. Remember, we just we were just having this conversation. It's like, what's you the gotta, repair gotta, record of that? The PG and E bill alone on that, and you're considering. And this is me trying to talk you out of this. It, not not the concept that space because if you're thinking about doing it in San Francisco, I don't know. Well, man. keep in mind I'm the property manager down there. So I oh you I, are I, yeah I'm now the property manager at the farm. Now, I, I would not say that that gets me a discount on rent, but I would say that I could get. A, a warehouse for dollar seventy five a square foot, oh. and I would say that it's stable. I mean, theoretically, it's stable. I mean, who knows? We're uh-huh. in San Francisco. I mean, nothing's stable, but it's just we have such a we we could be. I could sell out four rooms, and and I believe we're priced so fucking low. I mean, this room is three hundred dollars a day. People are like, "Congratulations on being sold out." I'm like, "What do you mean, congratulations? We're three hundred a day." I mean, you could, you know. A monkey could sell out. And this what is room. it? Was the engineer added the bill two two fifty? But all engineers on January first, all of them are going to three hundred a day. So re- it really, it's six hundred a day. It's six hundred a day. But the reason why I divide it up is that there are engineers that are fifteen hundred dollars a day that are on the list. So it's and they get hired. So it's it's like to me, I don't care. I, I limit the in-house engineers, the guys who I pay half 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 health insurance, I match four hundred one k's. I limit them what they can. Charge so I've limited them for two fifty for a long time, and I'm going to bring them up to three hundred. Mm. So the core group is protected, but there are many, many engineers that come in that are really, really expensive that come in on the house list. So to me, it's and also the other thing is that I don't care about the 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 studio is twenty four hour lockout, right? So in other words, if you come here, it's three hundred dollars a day. Everything else is between you and the engineer. Like the engi- I limit the engineer to 250 a day, but that's a reasonable eight-hour day. After that, you, you might get clocked on You overtime. limit your house engineers. Yeah, limit the house engineers, yeah. Right. And yeah, the house engineers to two, 250 a day. But they, I have encouraged them because they work literally every day. I mean, I think Bo Sorensen is going to work 330 days this year. Now, we got to keep him healthy. We got to keep him alive and functional. So basically, what I do to encourage, like if bands want to, 
clock, you know, bands want to like run an engineer like a rented mule that I encourage those engineers to charge like $65, $75 an hour after eight hours. I don't take any of it. That goes to them. So in other words, if they're getting really, really worked, they can, they can like get a lot more money, which is super smart for them. Super smart for the client. And, mm-hmm. the, and I tell the clients too, I'm like, hey, like all I want to make is 900 a day. That's all I care about. I want three rooms to be booked out, 900 a day, every day, 365. That's what I want. That's my end of the bargain. And I'll try to... For this is studio A, B, and C. Yeah, equals 900 a day. Okay. So that's what, I, that's what I need to live on. That's what I need. And that's, that's enough you know, for me to function and to buy keyboards and to make improvements and to you know, like keep, pay do, my mortgage do and the healthcare live. Thing for yeah, the do guys. the healthcare and, and pay into the... And, but after that, it's, it's, you, you, you are held responsible... Because we've seen engineers get act, do a 14-hour day and they're destroyed. I mean, if there were, we just had Rob Shelton just work 42 out of the past 47 days. If you start getting rocked for 14-hour days in the middle of that thing, man, you can't recover. We, we know that. We've been there. So we're trying to add it. First off, we work very quickly here. You can, we can do a record. I could make a record for anyone in eight days, eight hours a day. I mean, you know, this is linear access recording. It's very quick, you know. And we encourage first, second takes, you know, of material if, if as long as the players are confident and who, they have control over their instruments. That's a great way to, to record. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, we, you know, I, and, I, and I think about this stuff and I tweak this all the time. We used to not do overtime at all. And then I just, we just had to put, put in that rule because it was like we saw people getting taken advantage of. And so, you know, I'm always on the, it's always a fine line between like making things affordable and then making the talent stay because it's not like there's other engineers out there. You know, these are really specific dudes. Now all the engineers that work here, they play instruments. So it's like you play drums and engineer. You're like, that's so valuable. Do you know what I mean? To yeah. have an engineer that can do, we have three people that can do arrangements now. Like they're, they can engineer, produce, play instruments and do savvy arrangements. So I need to keep these guys happy and productive. I would say so. Oh, and also the other thing on the rates, there are engineers that are 150 and 200. And there are also engineers on the list that come in and do engineering for free. So like, in other words, if there's an engineer that wants to go up the ladder and they don't have a lot of experience, right? They will bring in a friend's band and they'll just be like, hey, just pay the day rate and I'll engineer. This is how everyone started. I mean, this is how a lot of people came up through the ranks was doing this. And it's very savvy. Ever since I've known you, you've always been booked out months in advance. Where are you at with this room? We're December 6th. This is the first open day. And we are on July 14th right now. Yes. This is July 14th, 2016. And you are booked out till December yeah. 2016. And, and that's how every studio should be. I mean, uh, studios ask me, how, how do you stay booked? Like, well, dude, there's a supply demand curve. Like, jump on one side or the other and don't complain about it. You know what I mean? Like... Like you're on one side or the other. It's very simple. You know, it's, this is very simple econ stuff. Like, and the, other, the, 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 the room in there is that it is a meritocracy. It might take five years before anyone notices, but you can get better at what you do. And then you can get, you can get albums. Through. We don't advertise. We don't, I, mean, I can't believe how many fucking studios in the Bay Area do like, like Google AdWords shit. I cannot believe it how much I see Yelp juiced and fucking SEO sh- optimization crap. And it's just like, why don't you one, lower your prices and or get better at what you do? It's not hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like why not? It's like Occam's razor, razor. What's the simplest explanation for why you're not booked? It's not because no one is being, you know, jammed down their, your, their throat with like a Yelp 
ad placement. Mm -hmm. It's because you're not doing work that's good enough to get people to come back. You know what I mean? Or you're not nice enough or, you know, you don't, you're not like teching your shit, Mm -hmm. you know? I had a great discussion with um, John Schimpf over at 25th Street and he was really praising you uh, in our conversation. And just the, the conclusion of that conversation was, is there are some people in the Bay area that feel threatened by your rates. And we laughed at that because we said, there are so many different studios and so many different styles of bands that it's impossible for one studio to satisfy the needs of every, everybody that comes in the door. So there's a variety and yeah. you provide a certain kind of experience. Yeah. It's not the only experience. And yeah. for somebody to feel threatened by that, we felt was laughable. And also that doesn't speak well of the studio too. If like, if you feel threatened by competition, you should be excited by competition. You know what I mean? I'm, right. I'm super jazzed that there are like some competent, you know, competitors like that. That's exciting to me. I mean, it makes and, you want to do better, and it makes you better. I mean, if you respond, if you're if a, if you're a hel- if you have a healthy ego, um, then it can actually be incredibly motivating. I mean, it's hey, like we're in a building with new improved. They're smart people, man. They oh, scare. I, I, I've been doing a couple yeah. sessions over there. They scare me. Jay and Ian know what the fuck they're doing. You know what I mean? Like John and, and Eli, they're smart people. It's good to be scared. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> it's good to know that like we can go three walls over, and there's like. You know, there's a lot of Fern and EAR and fucking Neve compressors. There's shit that I would I would go and you know I'd but batter down the door to but get. But it you know? serves a different need. What you know, as a freelance guy, when I see the two of you, I see certain needs yeah. for certain clients for new improved, and I see the same for here. Yeah, and this can't possibly, for me, serve all needs all the time. It's not appropriate all the time. And and competition is awesome. Okay, cool. So now you get, you caught up a little bit with John and, and uh, what's been happening. So uh, let's get into it now with Brian Hood, right into it. Brian Hood on the Working Class Audio podcast. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me come over and interrupt the the flow here. So I think it's probably best if we talk for now about right now what's happening. And then I want to backtrack and I want to not talk about tiny telephone scene. I want to talk about you and your path. Cool. Okay. So um, John and I just got through talking about how basically uh, this planned shutdown was a planned shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember having the discussion with you guys months ago about it, how I would come back and we would have a, you know, a debriefing on the whole concept Mm -hmm. and what's taking place. So John gave me his thoughts. I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, You have been like the man at the helm as far as putting this place together. So what Mm -hmm. have you, what have you learned in the process and what, tell me about the, the hindsight is 2020 kind of thought. I I think the idea of doing creative engineering for six months and then closing the place for a month and doing some upgrades. I think it was a good plan. I think the plan hasn't changed in the six months. We're just going to do what we didn't get done and not too much more. But, you know, in, a, in, a, in other studios and other spaces, I'm sure they have really huge glaring issues that they never get to 
really get to because they're booked and they're open and closing down, dirtying the place again, going through construction phase usually never happens. Plus people don't have the money. And so they don't kind of take their design to the next level. They just live with it. And then it really becomes creative engineering always. You know, it's like, what are we going to do to, to, you know, mask the albatross in the room that's screwing up our recordings? And so then it's like, okay, so treatments, 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 diffusing, diffusion, diffusion, whatever, and, and deal with it. And where, and the way that they handled it here, it's like planning that we're going to shut down and, and live with it and, and know that that's what they need, you know, not doing it and then planning it in the future and then being like, okay, after the six months of being able to use the space, we know we need what we wanted to do and it's not going to be a waste of money. Hmm. And so, yeah, we're going to come in on Monday and hang 27 two by two panels on a 20 degree cant, um, three foot and five foot kind of altering in the room. And that's going to add some more diffusion. It's going to be reflective plywood on the bottom and then insulation on top. So then we're going to hopefully kill like a half second of reverb time in the room, which would be nice. Wow. Yeah. If we get a, if we get a full half second, we'll see. We've, we've definitely, I mean, I came in the space, you know, obviously in the beginning when it was just cinder block walls everywhere. And I mean, it was like three and a half seconds of reverb time. I mean, it was huge. Huh. And then after the build, we got this space untreated was about two seconds. And now as is, it's about a second and a half, maybe a little less. So we're trying to get it right around one second, you know. And then I think it's going to clean up a lot of stuff. We'll be able to back the mics off the sources a little, little more. Mm. So I'm, I'm excited for them to get it a little bit more. He, he threw some stuff, some soft stuff up on top at some of these rooms and, and kind of killed a little bit. But I think what we're, what we're going to do next week is going to do a lot. It's going to be great. I mean, are there things that you, other things other than that, that you see that you just from a, you know, OCD perspective, wish that you could deal with? I, I, I wish there was a budget to redo the roof. I wish oh. that we could get rid of the trains, planes, and automobiles, but oh, oh, that's kind of like or the rain. So this place in the rainy season, if we a big storm, it's it's almost you know it's going to be part of the recording. You need to you need when, when you're recording here, you need to be like at, at at a whim's notice, like you need to be able to do some overdubbing or you know do some close miking in one of the ISOs because <laughs> like I was in here when it was raining pretty hard and it's it's a non-starter for sure. I mean it's loud. Interesting. So it's a little bit filterable, but not really. I mean, and how so could you? I mean, the it would be another roof on top, a foam roof. Okay, okay. It'd be an outside foam roof. I mean, we talked about in the very, very big, like even two years before we started this project, we talked about what we what would we do, and we talked about you know it, probably thirty grand to do a you know another faux ceiling and fill it with insulation, sheetrock the whole entire place. And then, then we have sheetrock, which is a problem. So then we have to treat that. So then we either need to diffuse it. Then we need, you know, panels and diffusers on top of all the sheetrock. So we're, you know, we're getting an upward of 40 or 50 grand just to negate the, negate the roof. Right. And so that's where, you know, a lot of these big studios that are built in commercial buildings, that's where the budget is, is in the roof for sure. I mean, you know, 25th Street Recording spent, you know, I don't even know how many million on their roof redoing the entire ceiling of the whole building. Hmm. Yeah, so. because the if you the audience can't see it, but inside here, it's the 
you know, just the roof is, this is gorgeous, you know. It's, it's gorgeous. Really, and it, it sounds good and in here. Yeah. But the thing is, is, you know, when a big plane or a big truck goes by or whatever, you, it's spilling in a little yeah. bit. And it's not that bad. And I know that I haven't heard any major complaints from anybody yet, but I know I'm sure there's been a few times where they've had to stop and be like, wait, that that's clearly in the drum mics, <laughs> you know, or, would, or soft would you part, foresee you know? that, uh, treating the outside at some point would yeah, be I, something to be done? Yeah. I think for, you know, for maybe 15 to 20 grand, they could just do an entire new foam roof on top of the existing roof. And mm -hmm. then they'd have to, you know, they'd have to roof over that foam and then that would absorb a lot of the rain and it would give it a decent amount of, you know, mid, you know, high mids, um, high mids and, and, and high frequencies drop those a bunch. And then the really low end stuff, probably way easier to filter at that point. Hmm. But we could do just this section of the building. I mean, they don't need to do the entire, you know, the entire building. That's true. Yeah. But if everybody kind of got together, um, you know, the other studios and everybody ponied together, it'd probably be a much better deal to do the entire building. Yeah. So let's go back. Okay. Tell, tell me a little bit about, uh, your, you, you're kind of a, a person who's got a, a recording, a mixture of recording and construction. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, I grew up a guitar player, started playing when I was 12 and been in bands all through high school and my entire adult life. And then got into in engineering in my early 20s mm -hmm. and went to college for it, went to SF State and did the broadcasting department there. And um, Was that with uh, John Barsotti? Yeah, Barsotti. Love wow. that guy. Yeah, he's really cool. Um we used to have so much fun. I'd bring in so many of my friends' bands and, and we'd all hang out with him. And he actually did a seven inch record for one of my bands and we mixed it at his house. And, uh, yeah, he's, he, he's got a cool, cool little setup at his place. And yeah, so I went, went to SF state for a few years, spent, you know, all my time in the basement with him basically and got through it, graduated. Um, and I just did a lot of engineering around the Bay, different, different studios. And as, I went through college basically from about the age of 20 until, you know, I graduated college at almost 30 just by leaving and going on tour with bands and dropping out semesters and finally finished. I, I engineered and built the whole time. And so went from being, you know, the laborer up to being a carpenter and, you know, journeyman carpenter and then, you know, getting my contracting license. And, you know, now I have a, a lucrative business and, you know, engineering is always something I love to do and I still do it, but I don't make any money doing it. And it's usually punk bands, you know, shoestring budgets, that kind of thing. So I couldn't really make a living as an engineer and do what I wanted to do, which was to tour with my band and, you know, go on vacation and stuff like that. So I kind of put my worlds together and I was like, oh, I can build studios. And, you know, I kind of self-taught my way through that. And, Interesting. Uh, I've gotten, I've been lucky to work with a few good studio designers, um, Polonis and a few other people and really learn from them. And I, I ended up with, you know, ended up getting my hands on a bunch of documents like Walter Stork plan sets and stuff like that. And really been able to like dive deep into them and, and really understand the construction processes and, and then working with, you know, pe people like Manny LaCaruba and stuff and, you know, learning from them about frequencies and, and and learning the the ratios of of sound and slot diffusers and building you know quadratic diffusers and then that kind of thing and so it's now it's kind of like I understand how to make something that you buy from RPG for ten thousand dollars 
I know how to make it for like a thousand dollars, you know? So it's like, it becomes a, a nice thing where it's like, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm a local guy that can build you panels and diffusers for a fraction of the cost that you'd buy them from a company like RPG. I mean, there's only a few companies that sell really high quality, you know, diffusers that are made to spec. And I mean, when you're making something to spec, it's like, okay, I'm going to send you, you know, I'm going to send you the math and I need you to build this. And then, you know, you get a bill and it's like, yeah, you got one, you know, four by eight, you know, custom QRD and it's like 15 grand, you know. And then if you start using crazy woods and that kind of thing, it gets expensive. Huh. So now we have, you know, Hood Construction has a, has a uh, fabrication facility now and we build all of our, our panels offsite and we can just show so, up and So install. you're not only doing construction in the traditional sense of like when uh, you came in, we were talking about uh, the bathroom, like mm-hmm. you do like traditional construction, but you also happen to just yeah. have quite a lot of knowledge about building studios. Yeah. I mean, for, I mean, for years and years I was, you know, I was finished carpenter, you know, for other contractors and out in like Black Hawk and San Ramon and out in the Valley, you know, where a lot of the rich, you know, big, fancy houses are and I learned a lot from a lot of like really amazing master carpenters and did some shop work here and there and that kind of thing and so it's like you know studios don't go up every day especially not anymore I mean I I kind of I kind of have this fascination about the past and I'm like I sure wish that I could have been who I am in the 70s and like been like a part of building fantasy studios and like you know Hyde Street and like Coast and all those other studios that are really awesome or like you know been able to been around in the day and like met you know bill putnam and like worked with all those people because i mean it gives me goosebumps when i think about it it's like that's you know that's the style in which we've done this room you know this is like a but putnam, i mean i mean basically a putnam designed room almost i mean know? just to give credit where credit's due i mean this is a great place and while i i hear you about going back in time and meeting those people and yeah. being a part of that but you're part of a new generation and true in you know, 30, 40, 50 years, people could be having the same conversation. Oh man, I wish I could have met Brian Hood. (laughs) You know, you never know. Yeah, that's true. You you never know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's tried, true, and tested. And it's like when you're making, you know, things don't change. Physics don't change. Reverb time doesn't change. I mean, the physics of sound don't change. So it's all in how you deal with it. Right. All, all the, all the, all the work and the hard sweat blood and tears of the past is what gets us to know how to do what we do now. And so I think we're figuring out some things now too that are changing. Um, the unfortunate fact is that people are, are happy with, you know, recording in small rooms and, and the sound of things are changing and people are, you know, people's, some people's um, audio aesthetic is, is, you know, satisfied with lo-fi and MP3 and everything else and i i still like the sound of tape and big rooms you know s- small yeah. s- you know small setups with just a few mics and you know really creative engineering is and building spaces that are large enough to do that like this room you can do that you know yeah a well, lot yeah. of the, a lot of the other studios we've done in the bay are like you know sh- you know really really low ceilings and tight miking kind of spaces so but and obviously you know the type of music will dictate i guess the type of space you know that you're operating in true so but i mean if we're talking about the past and and making a 
good old traditional room where people can play live, you've done that here. We had a good cast of characters. I mean, I changed a lot of the design aspects that we got from a few different people. Shane, Shane uh, Meyerbeck from the Arab Design Group, he did a lot of the preliminary help and design. Some of the first meetings we had were with him. And he was in a band that recorded at Tiny and SF, and he really wanted to put some time in. And I think he did some amazing work for John at a really, really amazing price and and he helped a lot in the initial design we changed a lot of that stuff but it kind of came you know naturally through time and kind of deciding what we wanted for the space and once we got in here you know there's a lot of design build that went on here i mean if everything was cookie cutter on paper done we probably could have pulled it off in five months but we ended up being here for like 11 months and then you add this month it's like you know it's a year build and uh, a lot of that was like, hey, you know, I think this wall should be thicker. I think we need more real estate over here. I think that we need to cant this, this wall a little more. I think that, you know, put a more degree on this and, you know, this door needs a window and like. You're kind of uniquely you know. qualified to kind of be the, a good person to not only advise, but, you know, once again, take the helm of somebody's dream as far as building a space, no matter the size when it comes to studios. Because, I mean you have this this audio background you're a musician and yeah. your journeyman uh would you say is it is the proper term you're a journeyman uh what is the proper term well i would say in in regards to carpentry i'm probably more more towards the master carpenter okay kind of a little a little further along than a journeyman carpenter but i'd say in studio building i'm probably still in that journeyman stage Mm-hmm. where I think there's other people in the Bay Area and a lot of people that are, you know, have 10, 15 years more experience than I do that we're probably more like the master studio builder stage. But I'm getting there. And, um, you know, having the experience as a musician and recording uh, and the engineer background and the building background, it kind of puts me on all sides of the glass, you know, so to speak. Definitely. And so that's kind of cool where I can be like, I know what the engineer is going to want in this in this room. And I know what the musician's going to want in this room, and I know what I'm going, what I need to do as a builder. And so, to satisfy the three people and be able to make, you know, spot decisions, like it makes it easier for me. Where I'm not, I, 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 I trained a bunch of people to work and build with me to do multiple studios. This one, a few in SF, a few in Oakland, and and to see them not know why they're doing what they're doing. It is was educational to me, you know, to see somebody be like, so why are we, why are we displaying this wall like this? And then I, you know, get to explain to them the reason why we don't want to have any 90 degree angles or parallel surfaces and flutter echoes and, and, and the difference of absorbing and diffusing and why you don't want too much absorption and, you know, base traps and what they do and why and energy and how it moves surfaces and how you want density to be different and you don't want all the walls the same thickness Hmm. and density because they all vibrate at the same frequency and then you have amplification and you know explaining that kind of stuff to to people and it really ingrains it to me to like reiterate it all the time and 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 help other people understand why we're doing these these things and why the rooms are shaped the way they are and you know coming up with like this you know this chevron shape around the room and coming up with that idea and you know at first we were going to do we were going to do horizontal chevrons and then we talked about vertical chevrons and then we talked about multiple 
vertical and horizontal chevrons and the, this room kept getting redrawn and redrawn and redrawn and then it was a real estate thing where it was just like well we need something to break this parallel surface up we had the main dividing wall which is the structural wall of of the studio that is carrying the whole upstairs that's above right so we basically have a huge bunk bed that is the structural element and it's not tied into the existing building anywhere so it's all just it's there's rubber lining the whole thing so in an earthquake it moves i mean it's it's crazy how much it moves i mean we had an earthquake while we were building here and i was in this room on slab and we had four guys on ladders in the control room on the on the floating floor that's in there they were on ladders and i was like in this room and i said oh shit and they were like what do you mean oh shit what we do wrong like they were expecting me to yell at them and be like you did that wrong or something you know but instead i was like we just had an earthquake and none of them could feel it because the whole room just moved independently and and the rubber allowed it to sway back and forth so that whole the whole structure is on rubber and it's all decoupled completely so you know it's pretty neat let me ask you so hood construction is a multifaceted type of business in mm-hmm. in terms of the scope of what it can do yeah i mean we do bathrooms we do kitchens we do studio commercial ti i've done t-shirt shop on hate street that's in the news right now i i did that store oh this right that store uh I, I i built that store uh you know we did a cheese shop in emory or uh in um temescal area uh you know we've done restaurants i've done soundproofing for Park Day School in Oakland. We've done some restaurants. What if somebody wanted to hire you outside of the Bay Area? Um, it's possible. It's all, it's all, it's, you know, it's logistics and it's, it's about me getting out of town. I mean, I've had Chris Polonis call me a few times and say, hey, I have a studio build in Southern California. Would you be able to mobilize and make it happen? And uh, the immediate answer was like, that would be pretty difficult for us because we're not really tooled up for that right now. And well, actually, this was a year and a half ago, two years ago that 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 came up and I had to say no, but it was now it's a lot more feasible. I mean, now we have more trucks and more equipment and we'd be able to mobilize to L.A. to go build a studio. You know, we'd have to, you know, get the guys in hotels and get per diem for the dudes and get our tools situation figured out. And is the process harder in that way? Because like, for example, the permitting process, I'm sure you have that figured out that's no problem yeah that that stuff isn't a problem i mean i have a contractor's license in the state so oh, okay. okay i mean even out of state it's not a problem um but i think that the hardest problem is is logistics just learning a new community finding supply houses finding oh, lumber yards yeah. you know sourcing materials if the design is totally done really well and at full full plan sets with everything all details and elevations and all that stuff is done then I can do a straight, you know, lumber take off of it and be able to have stuff dropped. Like, I mean, we could show up and it becomes Legos at that point, you know. I mean, with really good design, that's where the the budget gets broken for most people. And that's almost, I've, I'm yet to be on a studio build where I'm handed like here, bang, here's like, you know, 40 page full size plan set of what we're doing. You know, this this job, I brought in a drafter and we put everything on paper from our heads into the in into cad and then got it printed out so that we had something in the field and i could hand it to my carpenters and be like here you know frame this wall that kind of thing but i'm yet to work on a on a project that was really had really thorough design and so i think to get out of 
town to be able to go out of town somewhere far and do it like i think that's necessary for sure and i wouldn't i wouldn't think there wouldn't be i mean if they have a budget to bring in a construction crew from from afar and you know have the budget to put us up and and deal with the logistics of that and i mean of course our rate would be you know a little higher to to be out of town for that long because i can't imagine it would be any less than a few months you know oh sure well, so let's talk a little bit more about um, just to come back around and, and touch on the uh, the acoustic products we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, are you purposely trying to you know create a line of, of acoustic products? That's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, there there is a lot of companies out there that do just that, yeah. and you know they have they don't do on site install. They don't do any of that. You order their panel on the internet. And, and you get it. I mean, I do the same panels for the same price, but I, you know, I'm local, so you don't have to pay for shipping. So it makes it easier for me to do that. A lot of them are really standards. It's really standard stuff. So to put my stamp on it is no different than the stamp other companies have put on it. You know, it's a lot of those panels are really simple. I have a selfish uh, question here. Um, if I put together plans or rough ideas for a desk, like a, you know, a Producer's desk. Like a producer's desk. Mm-hmm. Is that something that yeah. I can have you do? Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten a few calls about that. Um, I Unfortunately, people don't understand the, the economics between custom-built furniture and, you know, an Argosy desk that you order on the internet that shows up like Ikea and you put it together. I mean, right. the difference is, you know, the difference is it's a huge amount of money. I mean, for me to build something custom in my shop and out of, you know, maybe some exotic materials or whatever, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can definitely do that. And, and it's something I really love to do for sure. But the last couple people that have asked me, it was like the even the ballpark figure was like, ah, kind of disappear. <laughs> oh, my needs but, are pretty simple. It's just like, you know, straight mm-hmm. top, keyboard tray, and maybe a little spot for like yeah, some rack ears. Four, space, four yeah. space rack thing at an angle. That's about it. Yeah. No, I, we can totally do that. I mean, simple materials, it could be, you know, it can be, you know, solid wood, it could be plywood, it could be, you know, melamine, wipeable surfaces, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, now it's like, I'm so excited because I took over this facility in in February. We finished this in January. I took over this facility in February and basically been setting it up. And so like just yesterday, your shop. Yeah. Just Uh, yesterday I bought like a full size table saw, you know, like finally I have a real cabinet saw. Where's your, where's your shop located? We're in East Oakland, like international Boulevard in the bad kind of bad neighborhood, but cheap shop space. Yeah. It's, you know, security is an issue and you know, there's a lot of homeless and prostitution and that kind of thing in that neighborhood. But you know, we, we keep it pretty secure and you know, we're not, you know, advertising that we have this nice shop inside of this shitty building, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but so. you're not, you don't have a lot of foot traffic. You're not expecting no, foot traffic. No, no, not a lot of foot traffic. I mean, we have this, a lot of like scrappers, this like scrapper guys that all drive down the alley and they're all like right in front of our space. And we, tr- we keep the doors closed and don't let people see in and that kind of thing, but it's slowly building, you know? So it's like, I'm building, I'm buying new machinery and we're getting it set up and, we have this huge fabrication table where we can pull fabric over and, and make panels on a whim. I have like, you know, rolls of fabric and insulation all in stock and I can just pull it out and make panels pretty quick. Hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of a nice setup in that regard. And it's, I don't, I, I guess to go back and answer your question about having my own 
products and stuff like that. I mean, I think that's definitely something I'd, I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And I know how fast I can build that kind of stuff. And it's, I guess it's all about the competition, you know, like on the internet and getting that side of things to advertisement, that kind of thing. And also, I don't know if you've thought about this because I'm always on these websites looking um, at uh, these companies that make nice, like, you know, two to four to six space racks made out of like walnut or, mm-hmm. you know, real nice woods. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, I can't remember the name of them. Yeah, I can't remember the name of them. Anyhow, I'm always on there looking at, you know, thinking, oh, should I put that in a rack? And, oh, right. that's that much. Oh, and they are here. Okay. Right. So. I, t- I do the same thing when somebody says, hey, can you build me something? I kind of do research on my side of things and make sure that my price isn't just stupid ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously it's custom made by somebody that you can talk to and and design it. Like you can tell me you want like the top to be green and the sides to be walnut and the feet to be gold, whatever, right. you know, like we can do that. And, th- and there's, you know, there's obviously a price for that to be able to have that kind of personal experience when you get something built for you. Um, but at the same time, it's like my goal and my goal has always been this way in building and everything else in life. I mean, I'm a, I'm a punk rocker. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't believe in gouging people and I don't believe in charging an arm and a leg for a product like, or, or a build. Like, I don't go into somebody's kitchen and go, oh, well, you know, because I'm putting in granite countertop, I'm going to charge you $10,000 more, you know, or like I, a lot of contractors out there that just gouge clients, I mean, left and right, it's crazy. And hmm. the prices people pay for things, it's just, it's, it's scary. And it's just like, it doesn't need to be that way. I don't need to be rich off of building. I don't, I don't think I'd be any happier. Eventually I want to own a home and I want to have my shop space and I want to have my studio space. So, well, I know I a guy up, that could build your studio space. <laughs> I, I had a studio in Oakland. I had a studio for a few years. Did, did you build it? Um, I was in the process of building it out and we were using it while we were building it. It was right here on San Pablo and, and, uh, 65th. And so, uh, are we talking we, about, re- uh, we're talking about recording studio, recording space. studio. Yeah. yeah. And so we had, you know, we had gear with pro tools rig and a, and a two inch tape machine and, I still have a ton of equipment. It lives at my friend's studio in Oakland, and he he gets to permanently use my gear for all my preamps and all my mics and stuff like that. So I get free recording time. All right. Hope you're enjoying my uh, talk here with Brian Hood here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's time to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio Technica. And, you know, once again, just want to hip you to the Audio Technica website, audio-technica.com. Lots of microphones to choose from to satisfy all the different fields of recording that you're going to be tackling. And uh, headphones, of course. And uh, turntables and phono cartridges. Get all your transducers on. How about that? Yes, and uh, Audio-Technica will be at AES in Los Angeles, and I will be hanging out at the booth uh, for a period of time. So uh, come on by, say hello, see some new stuff. You could say hello to uh, Gary Boss our dear friend over at Audio Technica. And uh, and if I'm there, come by, say hello, let's chat. Look forward to seeing all of you there at AES in Los Angeles at the Audio Technica booth. And if you're not going, do stop on by the audio-technica.com website. That would be most appreciated. Pay our respects to our, to our dear sponsor. All right, well, that's it. So uh, let's get back into it here with Brian Hood and wrap this conversation up, okay? Right on. Brian Hood, Working Class Audio. Where does your desire your passion for the act of recording as a as an engineer where does that lie 
at this point? Right now, it's it's it. I haven't done any engineering in over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while there, it was just small small projects doing you know some overdubs for somebody here or there and that kind of thing. Um, my Pro Tools rig went down, and I kind of th- threw more money at the business than I did at getting another another setup. Mm-hmm. Um, now things are opening up a little bit financially, so I probably will, you know, get a better setup. Um, I sold off the tape machine, or actually my studio partner took it, um, and I took the Pro Tools rig, which computer went down. Now it's way outdated, that kind of thing. So having a home setup, I don't have it anymore. Um, and, a, and a place to work, I do. I can, you know, my, my buddy Jeremy Goody has Megasonic um, recorders in, in Oakland, and uh, I built his space. Polonis designed it, and uh, it's a great little studio. And we are I'm, my band right now is doing a record there. And to be able to fill in and jump in and and work there in the future is kind of what I'd like to do. As far as working as an engineer professionally, I don't see that. I, I kind of think that all my eggs are in the construction basket now. So I incessantly read tape op, and I'm still very much excited about recording right and i'm totally involved when when my band is recording it's like i'm producing and and playing the role of second engineer probably very annoyingly so if whoever's (laughs) engineering but but obviously your 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 passion uh no matter how active or not at this point in time your passion for recording and and audio still informs your current construction of uh, course business when when it pertains to audio of course yeah of course and i mean I, I still like my brain still goes wild when i listen to a new recording thinking about how it was done yeah or hearing something familiar and being like i know i know how they did that <laughs> you know and that kind of thing where it's like you're, you're still passionate about it but honestly financially it wasn't making any sense for me to to continue as as a recording engineer and trying to do both at the same time is is really tough trying to run a construction business and have people that work with you and for you uh, and keep them working and then be able to like say hey i'm not going to work for the next two weeks because i'm going to do a record for a band you know? <laughs> like you can't just shut the business down and right. go, you know so you can't disappear at night you know i'm still go to band practice you know yeah. and like we still record and we record at night and like you know weekends i'm still i still do live sound i do sound at merchant saloon in oakland and so I do live sound is more what I'm doing nowadays than anything else. So I put together sound systems. I build stages and, you know, put sound systems in a lot of my friends' bars and clubs and stuff like that. So Interesting. Wow. We do, you know, I try to stay busy in regards to being a part of the audio community, but working as an engineer has kind of fell off a bit and it makes me a little sad. I don't know. I think it's... It's fascinating to me that like you're doing live sound, you're playing in a band, you engineer occasionally, and you're doing this construction thing. Uh, it's not only is it multitasking and it's diversification. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the majority of your 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 you make your living mostly off of construction, but I admire you for continuing to educate yourself and which directly educates your your sense of building and your desire to continue to build rooms like the one we're in now and future rooms yeah i mean i i jump at the chance anybody calls and they want something you know studio related audio related i've i've you know 
canceled other gigs to take them. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I totally canceled so many gigs to be a part of this project. I mean, when I met John for the first time and got involved with him and, and did Studio B and SF yeah. and, and being a part of that and just that was kind of my big step. Like that was post that was post working with Polonis and and post doing a bunch of jam rooms and garage conversions and you know a ton of stuff like that. And um Megasonic was probably my was my first real studio build. And then being able to do Studio B for John with no plans and no designer and no idea of what he wanted, but he wanted something better than Studio A. And so I went over there and I saw, you know, when I walked in, it was still an auto shop and it was all like this, you know, corrugated metal building with a broken down car in it. And I was like, wow, man, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. You know, we got to start over like new walls everywhere, like, you know, and that kind of thing. And so we, we, we got it and we, you know, B is a very usable space. I mean, it's a bunch of square rectangle rooms. It's not quite like this. No. But it's, it's very usable, and yeah. they've made a lot of really awesome records there. And so it's always nice when I hear something, and I'm like, "Wow, that sounds killer!" And then I go to find out that it was done at a studio I did. It's like kind of that's neat. a whole nother level of of uh, satisfaction and pride. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to you know play in a record, one thing to you know make a piece of you know be a pro audio manufacturer, right? Um, to know that somebody has made a piece of something, a piece of art that did not exist before in a place that you had a major hand in. Yeah. What a thrill. Yeah, it's cool. Huh. It's cool. And it's just randomly on the internet. I'll be like, see a band and and uh have a little interest or whatever and look at their, you know, be on Facebook or whatever and look at their photos. And then I see photos of them in tiny SF. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I did that. <laughs> it it makes you like super little kid for a second, you know, you go like I did that. Uh, pat yourself on the back a little bit. <laughs> well, this uh, I think we'll wrap it up. This has been good. It's great to talk to you, and I've yeah. been really chomping at the bit to get down here and, and have this conversation. Thanks for having me, man. Well, there you have it. Brian Hood on the Working Class Audio Podcast, preceded by our friend John Vanderslice. I want to thank uh, Brian for taking the time out of his schedule. He's a busy guy, so... Uh, there it is. All right. Well, we're out of time and we got to say thanks to everybody as we usually do. Thanks to Cliff Truesdell and Chuck Smith and Cole Williams for all of your work and help on the podcast. I want to thank our sponsors, of course, Gearsluts.com, uh, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica and Universal Audio. And I want to thank you. I appreciate it. As usual, you know I do. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.